In the year 2004, the Athens Olympics, America women's 4x100 relay team was the fastest collection of sprinters in history. And it was assumed that if these ladies just showed up, they'd win the gold medal. A new world record was definitely in sight, but not so fast. For in the second leg of the relay, the impossible happened. Marion Jones and Lauren Williams botched the baton pass. Marion failed to get the baton to Lauren within the 20-meter handoff zone, and America was disqualified. And with America out of the race, the Jamaicans won the gold medal. You know, life is not a sprint. Life is like a relay. It's not just how fast you go that matters. It's the ability to pass the baton of faith and holiness to the next generation. That's what makes a person successful at life. And this is what Moses does in tonight's chapters. His leg of the race is nearly over. And he makes a clean pass of the baton to Joshua and to the succeeding generation. Chapter 31 begins. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, Oh, I'm 120 years old. Not really. We're going to find out later that, that he didn't act his age. That he was still full of vim, full of vigor. His eyes were sharp. But he says, I'm 120 years old. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Now, years earlier, Israel had whined about no water. And God had instructed Moses to strike a rock with his staff, and a miracle ensued. Water flowed from that rock. God had proven that he would meet the needs of his people. Why whine and complain again? But that's what happened. For the next time Israel became thirsty, they began to whine, they began to complain, and Moses became frustrated with the people, so much so that he misrepresented God. God wasn't angry with the people. God is patient. God is merciful. You know, he expects less out of us than we do. God told Moses to speak to the rock, but instead, Moses in his anger struck the rock. Of course, life-giving water still flowed out, but rashness, impatience cost Moses a heavy price. It cost Moses the promised land. Remember what was happening. God was painting a picture. The rock was Jesus and Jesus was to be struck but once on the cross. And from that one strike, life-giving water of the Holy Spirit flows to you and me. Jesus was crucified. Now all we have to do is speak to the rock. And we receive the Spirit's living water. But you see, Moses had marred the picture. And it cost him greatly. And here's the lesson for you and me. Just because... We lose our patience just because we get frustrated with the people around us. That doesn't mean that God does. Just as long as, just because you get frustrated with those little kids in that Sunday school class and you want to get angry and take it out on them, that doesn't mean that God's angry with them and we're there to represent God. So often, rather than vent our anger, we need to repent of our attitude. 
And we need to ask God for a greater measure of his mercy and his grace. Well, Moses says, God's told me I won't cross over this Jordan. There's another reason, though, I think that God may have prohibited Moses from leading Israel into the land of Canaan. You know, Israel already had an unhealthy allegiance to their leader. I mean, these folks put Moses on a pedestal. And I think God is concerned here that when Moses dies, the Israelites might want to dig up his body and turn him into some kind of an idol. This may be why God decides to hide Moses' burial spot. God wanted to communicate to Israel that it was not Moses who had delivered them from Egypt. And it was not any man that would lead them into Canaan. In verse 3, Moses says, For the Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. You know, godly leaders are a blessing to the church. But from time to time, God reminds us that no man is indispensable. Leaders come and go, but God continues his work. The old saying is true. God buries the workman, but carries on the work. If I drop dead tomorrow, or if the Lord called me to move on, my prayer is that our church would never skip a beat. Hopefully I've taught you to look to God, not to me. Well, Moses continues, Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Zihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites in their land, when he destroyed them. And you remember these battles. These were the kings that were east of the Jordan. The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Verse 6. So be strong. and Be of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be, do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Moses was a mere servant, but God was their leader. He was the leader that they should trust in. Guys, always remember, God is the one who goes with you. Human leaders will come and go, but God is the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Then Moses called Joshua. And of course, Joshua was God's appointed successor to Moses. For years, he had been trained and groomed by Moses. And now Moses puts Joshua up in front of the people. He passes the baton, you might say. And Moses said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Moses is passing the baton. And notice the baton is the Bible, isn't it? Moses writes down the words that God had given to him. Just before he died, Moses wrote down the first five books of your Bible and he gave it to the Levites for safekeeping. And I think this is our job, not just to understand the scriptures, but to pass on our knowledge to our kids, to pass the baton successfully. Hey, when you die, don't just be a smart corpse. Leave a legacy to your kids, to those who followed, to the people around you. Share what you know with them. 
Well, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Every seven years, the priests of Israel are to gather the people for a public reading of the law of Moses. This was important. Verse 12, gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that you may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. The first time this is practiced is in Joshua chapter 8 verse 30. We don't know the second time it was practiced. There's no record of another public reading of the law until the days of King Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 17 verse 7, 500 years later. The third reading of the law doesn't occur for another 250 years after that. In the days of Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34 verse 30. And the fourth reading we find in Scripture doesn't take place until after the captivity in Babylon, 175 years after that, in the days of Nehemiah. Now, there may have been some other readings of the law, but more than likely it was neglected until the nation found themselves into a crisis situation. Isn't that just like us? When do we pick up our Bibles? <laughs> when we're in trouble. That's when we want to read. Hey, I think Israel would agree it's best to use your Bible as a means of prevention, not as an act of desperation. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. And I like this phrase, you shall rest with your fathers. It testifies to the reality of the afterlife. The emphasis is not who you're leaving behind. The emphasis is that death allows you to join those who've gone before. So he says, you will rest with your fathers. But once Moses is gone, trouble is going to start. And this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, and that they have turned to other gods. And this is exactly what God said would happen back in chapter 28. This was what the curses that he had placed upon Israel. If they obey the law, God will bless them. If they disobey, they'll be cursed. And yet notice Israel's reaction. 
They conclude there is no God. All this comes upon them. And they conclude that there is no God. Hey, that was exactly what God said they would conclude, but it was the wrong conclusion. Hey, God was punishing them. God was judging them. And yet they took it as if God was not helping them. You know, it's interesting. This is what's happened today in modern Israel. Modern Israel is a secular state. Most Jews worldwide are atheistic or agnostic. Rather than recall God's warnings in Deuteronomy that if they sin, they would be judged, they have ignored their sin and they've blamed God for their trouble. Verse 19, Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. I mean, Moses had lived with them for 40 years, who knew their tendency was to rebel. You know, he knew the inclination of their behavior. Moses' prediction of their rebellion was not so much a prophecy as it was a projection. He knew the inclination of their behavior. Moses knew that Israel was prone to sin prone to wander, prone to rebel against God. Moses understood that man has a sin nature. As it's been said, it's not our sin that makes us a sinner. We sin because we are a sinner. And this is why the new birth is so essential. It's when we're born again of the Spirit of God that He plants within us a new and a sinless nature. We need that new birth. Moses' swan song was a literal song, he wrote down a song that would be sung by future generations of Israelis. He says, Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? <laughs> I mean, Moses, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in these people, does he? If my presence didn't inhibit your rebellion, how are you going to behave when I'm absent? Kind of feel that way with your kids sometimes, don't you? When Moses was on the mountaintop receiving the law of God from, from the Lord, he was absent 40 days. And what happened? Anybody remember? Israel went nuts worshiping that golden calf. And he was just gone 40 days. Moses knows that There'll be no more restrained after he's gone for good. Verse 28. 
Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Chapter 32 is the song of Moses. It served as an Israeli national anthem. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now obviously God left us the lyrics to this song. I wish we knew the tune or the beat. For all we know, it could have been a rock and roll song. But one thing is for certain, it's about a rock that doesn't roll. He says, ascribe to our God. He is the rock. Aren't you glad? Rather than shifty or flaky or mushy, God is solid. You can lean on God and not worry. God can hold you up. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and wise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Now, think of the kid who has this extremely wealthy father. The car he drives costs more than you get paid in a year. He goes to an expensive college. When he graduates, he isn't worried about finding a job. He's just going to move into the office down the hall from dad. And yet, does he say thanks? Does he appreciate his privileges? Absolutely not. He's spoiled rotten. He thinks he's entitled to all of these privileges and all of these advantages. Hey, this is Israel. God has been lavishing his blessing on his people, but Israel has no sense of gratitude. Moses asked, has he not made you and established you? Don't you realize this? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. From the very outset, God chose Israel to be his people. He found him in a desert place and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Here is God's love for Israel. And I love this description of God's care. He finds them. He encircles them. He enriches them. He instructs them. He keeps them. And he treasures them as the apple of his eye. What a wonderful thought. And I believe this is what the Holy Spirit does with us. You know, the apple of his eye 
is another way of saying his pupil. The apple of your eye is your pupil. Did you know that your eyelid moves at one fiftieth of a second to protect your pupil? Has it ever dawned on you how quick your eye will... I'm not winking at you over there, Ashley, but just, just how quickly you know your eye will to, to protect something that, that's approaching. One fiftieth of a second. Your eye blinks 25 times each minute. Here's a scary statistic I ran across. If you drove 55 miles per hour on a 10-hour trip, you drove 10 hours straight, 55 miles per hour, do you realize your eyelids would be shut for 33 miles? You would have driven 33 miles with your eyes closed. That's scary. Hey, you are God's treasure. He is so attentive to care for you. You are like the pupil in God's eye. And he is so quick to protect you and to keep you safe. He finds you. He encircles you. He instructs you. He keeps you. And he treasures you as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nests, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. Moses now references how an eagle stirs up his nest. They say when a mother eagle builds her nest, she uses thorns and stones and sharp objects. But then she covers them with fur and felt and whatever else soft she can find. So that when the baby eaglets mature, the mother bird removes the soft lining from within the nest and those sharp objects begin to prod the little eaglets to help them grow up and move out and spread their wings. And in a similar manner, God uses the rough times, doesn't he? He uses the points and the sharp edges of life to mature us and to grow us up. He stirs up our nest. Verse 13, he made him ride in the heights of the earth. In other words, God prospered Israel that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him to draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats. Bashan was east of the Jordan River and it was renowned for the quality of its livestock. The cows of Bashan is an expression that's used in the scripture. With the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes, but Jezuron, and this, this word means upright. It's actually kind of a sar sarcastic comment God is making. God calls Israel Jezuron, upright. You're supposed to be upright, but you grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Israel grew fat and sassy, lazy and unmanageable. Rather than appreciate the blessings that God had given them, rather than working, you know, doing the works of faith and, and taking that sustenance God had given them and turning it into muscle, they just grew fat and sassy and unmanageable and rebellious. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, 
to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Notice the, to sacrifice to idols is the same thing to sacrifice to demons. Demons are behind the idols. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. And as we're told in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Verse 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. Idols claim to be gods, but they're imposters. There is only one true God. God says, Israel has moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. And here is the foundation for Paul's theology over in Romans chapter 11. In fact, Paul quotes this verse from Deuteronomy. Paul says that when the Jews rejected Jesus, God chose to bless the Gentiles. Today, God's family is the church made up of Gentile believers from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And when the Jews see God shift his blessing to the Gentiles, it will provoke the Jews to jealousy. They'll become envious of the church and they'll want back their blessings. Through jealousy evangelism, God intends to reach the Jewish people in these last days. He says, For a fire is kindled by my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spin my arrows upon them. And this could all be prophetic of the last days of the great tribulation. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Everyone will be impacted by God's judgment, he says, the old man, the young man alike. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. God would have wiped out Israel, but his enemies would have taken credit for their annihilation and used it to boast against him. Again, God speaks of Israel, for they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. And how often I say that to my kids. Don't just think of the immediate consequences. Please think this through. Think about the latter end. You know, when the city planners drew up the streets of New York City, they contemplated the city's future growth. And they laid out the city streets from the center outwards. These engineers let their imaginations just run wild. They figured that the most that this New York City, the most streets that New York City would ever need was 19 streets. And so they called 19th Street Boundary Street. 
because they figured that would be the boundary, that would be the limit. How short-sighted they were. New York City today has 284 streets. There's still 284th Street. But this is the problem with many people. They don't think before they act. They don't consider the long-term consequences of their actions. As Moses put it, consider the latter end, whether it's drugs or sex, whether it's alcohol or porn, whether it's meth or money. People tend to focus on the immediate thrill, not the latter end. He says, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? When God fought for Israel, they overcome enormous odds to win battles. But when Israel fights alone, they're so anemic that one soldier, gets, one soldier from the enemy defeats a thousand Israelites. Verse 31, for their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. In other words, the enemy admits they have no God to trust. They have no God that will match Jehovah. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom in the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. In other words, prosperity will lead to their downfall. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Notice God's judgment is sealed up with God's treasures. It's interesting that both God's reward and his revenge comes from the same hand, distributed from the same storehouse. His judgments are sealed up with his treasures. Verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is in hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge." He's saying their idols, the idols that Israel has worshipped, will be no help to them in the day of their trouble. In verse 39, God says, Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Notice what God is saying. Says, you've worshipped these idols. You've served these foreign gods. But don't you know that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. God is sovereign. He says, I kill, I heal, I wound, I make alive. God is sovereign. No one can escape his judgment. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and with the captives, with the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. What a combination. God brings judgment and God provides atonement he judges but first he makes a way of salvation he brings judgment but he provides atonement 
verse 44. So God came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, notice this, for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. What a message to us tonight. You're sitting here, you're going through four chapters of Deuteronomy. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, there's better uses of my time. Why am I here tonight? But you know, this is not a futile thing you're doing tonight. This is not a futile thing. The study of God's word is never a futile thing. It's never an empty practice. The final four, now that's a futile thing. Watching the World Series, that's a futile thing. Catching the next Super Bowl, that's a futile, trivial, insignificant thing, but not God's word. You cannot exalt it too highly. You cannot become too preoccupied with your Bible. It is the one positive, healthy addiction. Reminds me of the ad that appeared in the Yellow Pages years ago. It said, born to be battered, the loving phone book. Underline it, circle things, write in the margins, turn down page corners. The more you use it, the more valuable it gets to be. And that could just as easily be said of your Bible. You can never wear it out. Your algebra textbook is not a futile thing because you're going to get tested over it at the end of the semester. Well, if that's the criteria of a book's importance, then every other book should take a back seat to the Bible. For there is a major test coming over this book, by the way. I hope you know that. The results are going to determine the course of your eternity. So as Moses said, the Bible is not a futile thing. He says, it is our life. It will prolong and prosper your days, both now and forever. It helps us possess God's blessings. Understand, when you apply yourself to the word, it is never a futile thing. Verse 48, Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. Moses will be allowed to see the land, but not enter what he saw. Moses will die on the mountain which you ascend and be gathered to your people just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah in the wilderness of Zin because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. You shall see the land before you though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. This is the end of the road for Moses. So in chapter 33, he says his goodbyes, and he speaks a final blessing to each of the 12 tribes that he has loved and guided for 40 years. Verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Now this is interesting. When 
God's glory shone from Mount Sinai. Evidently, it was seen from Mount Paran, 200 miles northward. That's a little detail you don't get earlier. But when the glory cloud hovered over Sinai, it was seen 200 miles northward. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. When the glory of God appeared on top of Mount Sinai, God was not alone. He was escorted there by ten thousand saints or angels. And apparently angels played a role in the giving of the law to Moses. This is one of the reasons, as we've been studying in Hebrews, we've talked about this, this is one of the reasons why the Hebrews so highly revered the angels because they had been instrumental in helping God transmit the law to Moses. Some Jews even worshipped the angels because of this close proximity to the law. Verse 3 says of God, Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob, and he was king in Jeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And now he blesses each of these tribes individually. This, in essence, is Moses' last will and testament. And I believe many, if not all, of these blessings are also prophecies. They're predictions of the future of each of these tribes. He says, let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, hear, Lord, the voice of Judah. Recall, Judah means praise. God always hears the voice of praise. And bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi, he says, let your thummim and your urim be with your holy one. Remember, the priests were from the tribe of Levi, and they used the urim and the thummim which we believe were two stones that they would use to cast lots and discern God's will, whom you tested at Massa and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. Moses was of the tribe of Levi, remember, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your statutes and Israel your law, they shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. And this is exactly what the Levites did. They were the teachers of the law and they were the administrators of the sacrifices. They were the preachers and the butchers. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that, that they shall rise not again. Verse 12, of Benjamin he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long and he shall dwell between his shoulders. I love these backpacks that are now available to parents, to moms and dads, where you can put your baby or your toddler, you can kind of put them in the harness and you can pick them up and kind of strap them on your back and you can carry them around. I wish they had those when, when our kids were younger. I mean, I can't get Zach in one of those now. 
But I wish I had those when my kids were younger. They're the niftiest little things, those little backpacks and all, that you can carry your kid between your shoulders. This is what God says that he will do with Benjamin, that he'll load him in his backpack. He'll carry Benjamin between his shoulders. Obviously, Benjamin had a place near to God's heart. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth in its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's two sons. Verse 18, And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, in Issachar, in your tents, they shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. The tribe of Zebulun will settle near the Mediterranean Sea, thus the abundance of the sea and the treasures in the sands, while Issachar's territory will border on the Sea of Galilee. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion. The Gadites were ferocious fighters. And tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord in his judgments with Israel. The Gadite army was God's enforcer. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. And of course, a lion's whelp was a young, a young lion, you know, a kid lion. In Genesis 49, Judah is called a lion's whelp. But Dan was an influential tribe. Sadly, though, Dan misused his sway, his influence. Judges 18 tells us that Dan was the first tribe to introduce idolatry into Israel. 1 Kings chapter 12 tells us that Jeroboam, the rebellious king who spun off the northern tribes against Judah, he set up a golden calf in the land of Dan. Amos 8.14 refers to the tribe of Dan as the center of idolatry in Israel. He says he shall leap from Bashan. Dan started out as a territory in the southwest corner of Israel. Years later, though, Dan migrated to the northernmost part of Israel, a land near to Bashan. He says, of Naphtali, he said, of Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. Naphtali's territory was north and west of the Sea of Galilee. His southern border was south toward the sea. Naphtali often occupied a strategic piece of real estate. Most of Jesus' ministry along the Sea of Galilee occurred within the boundaries of Naphtali. So no wonder Moses says Naphtali satisfied with favor and full of blessing. Verse 24, And of Asher he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze 
as your days, so shall your strength be. And this was the verse that caught the attention of a Texas oil man by the name of Andy Sorrell, a born-again Christian, by the way. Sorrell is the co-owner of Energy Exploration. And at the time, he was waiting on permission to drill for oil in the Sinai Peninsula when a friend of his showed him this verse. After surveying a map, it appeared as if the territory of Asher was shaped like a leg and the toe kind of settled out over Mount Carmel in the northern part of Israel. The last I read, Andy had drilled to 21,000 feet and had actually found a little bit of oil there in that region. If he hits a gusher, it's going to be real big news. If this prophecy refers to olive oil, well, Andy Sorrell has been wasting his time. Verse 26, there is no one like the God of Jezreel. What does that mean? Upright. The upright God who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. Notice this. God rides the heavens. I like that. How many NASCAR fans we got? Yeah, a few. Well, you know, I don't usually think of God as a NASCAR driver, but that might be a good analogy. For it's interesting, we, we read in the scriptures of God's throne, and, and usually when we think of a throne, we think of something stationary. But God's throne is a mobile throne. As a matter of fact, God can rev up his throne, and he can ride it through the heavens. When Ezekiel saw God's throne, he described it as a chariot. He saw a wheel within the wheels. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18, refers to the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, the Ark was a model of the throne of God. It refers to the Ark of the Covenant as a chariot. Psalm 18, verse 10, refers to God flying through the heavens. You remember Elijah? He was taken to heaven in what? In a fiery chariot. I believe that God himself revved up his throne and came and picked up Elijah personally. God's throne chariot flies through the heavens. The God of Jezreel who rides the heavens to help you. I love that. God is like a NASCAR driver. He straps on his helmet. He revs up his throne. He comes to our rescue to God, that's a joy ride. To rush, to run, to help his people. Well, the eternal God is your refuge, and I love this. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Are you leaning tonight on the everlasting arms? We need to do that song again. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. I hope you're seeking refuge in God. I hope you're leaning on the everlasting arms tonight. He says, He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety. The fountain of Jacob alone 
in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, to shield the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. God will thrust out his enemies. Israel will win the victory. And in chapter 34, we have what is really a short appendix to the book. And I think rather than written by Moses, this was probably added later by Joshua. That would be my guess. He says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah. Pisgah was the range. Nebo was the actual mountain, which is across from Jericho. We've got a video of that. That's looking out over the Dead Sea, looking eastward toward the Pisgah Mountains. And then here's a, here's a shot from the top of Mount Nebo. There you go, looking back. That's not a real clear picture. Mount Nebo rises 2,631 feet. And from its pinnacle, you can see 120 miles north to Mount Hermon. On a clear day, they say you can actually see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, Moses went to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and all the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea or the Mediterranean, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And notice here Moses' epithet. It's not Moses, the prince of Egypt. Moses, the shepherd. Moses, the lawgiver. Moses, the man who talked with God. Moses, the man who saw God's glory. Moses, Yul Brenner's worst nightmare. Moses, the miracle worker. Moses, the wilderness babysitter. None of those are said of Moses. When it's all said and done, it was simply Moses, the servant of the Lord. And isn't that what Jesus told us? The greatest pronouncement that a man can ever hear over him is well done, good and faithful servant. It's exactly what God said to Moses. And notice we're told Moses died according to the word of the Lord. And that's very interesting. For the Hebrew expression literally means upon the mouth of the Lord. There is a Jewish legend that says that Moses died as God took away his soul with a kiss. The medieval rabbi Moses Maimonides counted 903 different ways for a human being to die. 903 different ways. He said that if you got to die, this is the best way for God to take away your soul with a kiss. They said that's how Moses died. Spurgeon drew on this legend when he wrote, As a mother takes her child and kisses it and then lays it down to sleep in its own bed, so did the Lord kiss the soul of Moses away to be with him forever and then hid his body 
we know not where. Verse 6. And God buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. God himself buried Moses. It was a private ceremony. Not even his relatives were invited to the funeral. You know, years ago, you remember the Ayatollah Khomeini? You remember that whole thing? I remember when the Ayatollah Khomeini died. I remember seeing some news clips from Iran. Men were jumping onto the cart that was carrying his corpse. They were pulling his body out of the coffin. I mean, they were kissing the cadaver. It was gross. It was disgusting. And I can imagine these Hebrews treating the body of Moses similarly. I mean, they had a tendency toward idols already. And Moses was such a hero. It probably would have been easy for them to worship him. And this is why God buried Moses where the body could never be retrieved. Now, evidently, Satan also knew of the Hebrews' tendencies. He knew of their inclination. And he wanted to exploit it. And so... Satan tried to confiscate the body of Moses, but he was stopped. Jude verse 9 tells us that Satan wrestled with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. Michael prevailed, but I believe if Satan had gotten the body, I'm sure he was planning to turn Moses into some kind of shrine. God saw to it that it never happened. You know, there are two more reasons why God wanted to preserve and Satan wanted to desecrate Moses' body. Later, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus will all be standing on top of Mount Hermon. Moses and Elijah will appear alongside Jesus and Jesus will be transfigured. He'll, he'll, He'll be transfigured in glory. The glory of God from within him will begin to shine out. It's interesting. Moses will make it to the promised land. He will stand on Mount Hermon. But it will be about 1,500 years later when he does so there with Jesus. Moses appeared with Jesus in physical form. His body was held in reserve for that day. And it's also possible that in the great tribulation of the last days, Moses will be one of the two witnesses talked about in Revelation chapter 11. So he'll need a body again. And so that's why God has gone to great efforts to secure and preserve the body of Moses. Verse 7. And this is why I said earlier that Moses wasn't an old, decrepit 120-year-old. Moses was 120 years old when he died, but his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Now, if the Lord lets lets me live to 120 years old, I hope he doesn't let my eyes dim or my natural vigor diminish. If you have to live that old, it's good to do so in good health. And apparently that was the case with Moses. The elderly Moses could still see God's will clearly. He still had energy to do God's work. Rather than die of old age, God took his servant Moses. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. I'm sure they did. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended 
hey, it's time to move on. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. It's interesting. It's actually provocative that a man named Joshua will lead the people into the place that not even a man like Moses could have taken them. If you were to translate the Hebrew name Joshua into Greek, you know what you would get? You'd get the word Jesus. You see, Moses could take them only so far. He taught Israel right from wrong, but he couldn't lead them into God's rest and God's blessing and God's abundance. Only Jesus can lead us there. You know, the law of Moses exposed man's sin, but it didn't cleanse it. It told us to do God's will, but it didn't empower us. It takes the blood of Jesus to permanently cover our sin. It takes the blood of Jesus to empower us to do God's will. Only Jesus can bring us into that spiritual land flowing with milk and honey, that land of blessing and fruitfulness and peace. Only through our Joshua can we enter into God's wonderful rest. But Moses was a godly man, no doubt. And in verse 10, he gets his props. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel.